The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. Titus chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful again for your word. I don't have to be clever. I don't have to be uh, philosophical to be able to come up with things. I need to be able to just read your word and see what it says. And yeah, as, as Jim demonstrated this morning, there are some statements that we read sometimes that make us uh, ask questions, questions that maybe your word has answers for, maybe it doesn't. But it is ultimately that we have to come back to your word and we have to determine what it says about these matters. And uh, so as we look at uh, what uh, Paul had to tell Titus, to relate to these other people in the church, we ask that we might take these things to heart, and we would thank you for it then. Amen. So if you remember, just we're not going to do a lot of introduction, but if you remember, the point of the book of Titus is that Paul's writing to Titus, who's been left on the island of Crete. There were churches that were started on Crete, and he and Titus is there to set some things in order. Get some things taken care of in those churches. And one of those was appointing elders. And so we had qualifications for elders. And then we had to talk, then he had to talk to elders about why they really needed to handle the word well. And it's because you're going to deal with false teachers. Some of those false teachers are believers and some of them are unbelievers. And we looked at that. And all of it comes back to the fact that, that we have, this is my Hebrew Bible, uh, Hebrew and English. Don't be too impressed. But nonetheless, this is largely my Old Testament. And most of this does not govern how I live. So most of this is what the scriptures refer to as didascalia. It's doctrine that I agree is true. It just doesn't tell me what I'm supposed to do every day. And so we had problems as you're looking at this, that, that they want this to be Paul wants us to be correct. And it's not just teaching this. And we tried to give an illustration of this last week. And you look here in Titus chapter 2 and look down in verse 10, because I think that this is a really good place to illustrate what Paul is getting at. And in verse 10, it says, he's talking here to slaves, but he says, not pilfering or not embezzling, but demonstrating all good faith that they may, notice this, adorn. It's a form of our word for the world system to put things in order, that they might adorn or put in order the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. So here, I don't practice the doctrine of God my Savior. That's why he uses didascalia here. I don't practice the attributes of God. Are the attributes of God important for me to understand? Yes. Do they? Do some of them impact the way I'm going to, if I understand something about God's love, it impacts the way I should love? So we, we understand things about that, but it's not a doctrine that's said, this is who God is, you mean, that means you do this. This is God, you do this. That's different than saying, walk by the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust from the flesh. That's a didache. That's a doctrine that governs your practice. But didascalia, telling people that God is all-powerful, is not, that's didascalia, that's not practice. But if you understand that God's all-powerful, is there some didache that you might be connected to that? Yeah, when it tells you to cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. 
Why do you cast your cares on him? Because he's all powerful. He can do something about it. So did Oscalian, did a cake and have a relationship, but there's still two distinct things. And the reason this is important is because if you go back up to verse 1 in this chapter, chapter 2 here of Titus, it says, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound or healthy didascalia. And it's not going to exclusively be the doctrine of God, but it's going to be a lot of other things. And you want to help, you want to have a healthy didascalia. And so when we come here to the, to the, for, to the older men, he actually tells them their, how that healthy didascalia should look for those guys. And we talked about that last week. Today we're going to put in at verse 3, and he's going to address the older women. And then through addressing the older women, he's going to address the younger women and then come back to the younger men. And we'll see what we get through here then this morning. So Titus chapter 2 and verse 3. Older women now, so this is simply a feminine form of the word elder in the Greek, rather than a presbyteros, it's a presbyteros. I should be able to pronounce this a little bit better just trying to do this. But it's a it's a feminine form of the word elder is what we're trying to say again. So older women likewise are to be, and we have this first weir, first word here, uh, reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, in teaching what is good. And then it goes on that they might encourage the younger women. So the first part of it here is to be reverent in their behavior. And we have two different words here. We have the word their demeanor. We all understand demeanor. It's about the way you carry yourself in everyday life. There are people that their demeanor, they're very excited. Everything's exciting. I, I have a granddaughter that's these, spent a couple days with her. She's, she's these two poles on this, with this, with her demeanor. Her one demeanor is over here. Oh, this is the best park ever. Oh, look at, there's kids. I have a new friend. Oh, oh, we have to go for the park. Oh, no. You've got these two extremes of emotions that are connected with this. Her demeanor is that she, she moves between these two spectrums, getting so excited and then just, oh, like this. Having spent a couple of days with her, I know she's like this. But we have different demeanor. Some people have a demeanor that's very, very quiet. They're very quiet individuals. They're the kind of people that spend a lot of time. They're taking it in. They're thinking about it. You all get the idea of a demeanor. That's the first word that he uses here. Talking about kind of their the quality. When you think of this person, what are they? Are they a person that's that seems to be very thoughtful? Are they a person that's loud and gregarious? Something along these lines. But the second word that he uses there, it says that they ought to be reverent in their behavior. And the word reverent is a word that literally means to have a, a temple kind of conduct or fitting of the temple. So their demeanor is that which ought to be fit for the temple. Now, I didn't look this up to see if this is a word that the Greeks used in their culture, that there was a kind of a temple demeanor that people had in Greek culture when they went up to their Greek god temples and things like that. But the Jews certainly had a certain demeanor that they were expected to have when they were at the temple. There were certain things that they were taught were fitting and unfitting and things to do and carry out at the temple. And so when you think about, you know, the church is not the temple, the building. But what do we call this big room we're meeting in? It's an auditorium. Now, Leslie is the word here that I like. 
because I grew up in a church that this was called the sanctuary. What does sanctuary mean? Yeah, sanctuary is a sanctuary is simply a version of the word holy. So it's saying this is the holy place, and this is just an auditorium. This is not a holy place in of itself. When you and I are all absent from this, it's just a, this is just a meeting room. It's just a meeting room in here. But when we are together, we together, not the room, but we together constitute a dwelling place of God. Let's take a look at a couple of passages on this. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I'm not sharing anything with you that, you're all, that you don't already understand and appreciate. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he's talking about building. Remember, he's using two meta, he's, he uses two metaphors in there of, of uh, Paul and himself. We're going to verse 16 for, is where we actually want to go. But Paul's using for, for Apollos and himself and Peter, he's using these examples, two metaphors. The first one is for people working in the farm fields. And then he changes the metaphor to where people on a construction site working. And they're building this temple. They're building on the foundation that is Christ. And so if you come down to verse 16, do you not know that you all are a temple of God? You all are. Now, there's a, we could take this as a partitive in the sense that each one of you is, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. He's using the idea that you're building on the foundation that is Christ. That is an image that we're going to see. We're going to go over and look at it in Ephesians 2 in a minute. That's talking about all of us are like living stones that are being fit together in this foundation to form a temple. And so he says, do you not know that you all are a temple of God? And by the way, the word temple, we have a couple of different words for temple. We have a word that's related to the, to the Greek word priest. But this word, naos, is used of that, that 15 by 15 by 15 box in the back of the temple that they called the Holy of Holies. You know, if we translated Holy of Holies in modern English, do you know how we would translate it? If you wanted it word for word, you'd say Holy of Holies. If you actually translated it into English, you'd call the holiest. Because how did you make a superlative in Greek? Everybody knows what a superlative, right? Good, good. Impar uh, uh, comparative is better. And best is this. So fast, faster, fastest. That's superlative. How do you say the holiest? In Hebrew, you say the holy of the holies. That's the way you make a superlative. So when we translate it literally holy of holies, I think we get that, but that's the Hebrew way of saying the holiest place. That's the way the, that's what the Hebrew means. And that's what this word is using. We're not talking about just the big building that has the holiest place, which was a 15 by 15 by 15 room in the back of the temple. It was smaller than that when they had the tent. And then the holy place that sat in front of it. This is the holy place, and that's the holiest place. So you went in here, and this is the holy, and this is the holiest. And this is what we're referring to. We're that room in the back where the ark was where God's presence existed above it. And he says, do you not know that you all are a temple of God? Now notice this, and God will destroy him. Uh, oh, excuse me, I got ahead of myself in verse, I jumped down to verse 17. Do you not know that you're a temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? Now he does dwell in me as an individual, but he's looking at a corporate relationship. 
So there's a double indwelling. There's an indwelling in me, but there's also one in which the Spirit dwells in this holiest place as we're together. Verse 17, if any man destroys the temple of God, causes ruin to it, defiles it, corrupts it, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is that is the sort that you all are. And so he says, you are this holy place. All of us as believers. By the way, when he talks about defiling that, the whole point is in the context is that you're causing division in here because some people will say, well, we're Peter people. We like, if you guys like Peter, get over here. Oh, no, no, no. We're Paul people. You come over here. Paul people over here with us. And some of are going, oh, no, no, we like Apollos. And you're dividing, you're corrupting. The body of Christ is should never be divided among individuals down here. It's loyalty ought to be to Jesus Christ because he's the foundation. He is the cornerstone. He's the capstone. He's the beginning and the end of the body of Christ. He's the thing that gives the body of Christ and the church of God its character. And so if you cause ruin to that, if you cause division in the body of Christ, he says, God will ruin you. That's called discipline, by the way. And he talks about discipline more than once in this book. One of the big places it comes up again is over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, right? Where they're sitting down saying, we're having fellowship. This is fellowship. Fellowship in the, in the, in the body of Christ and fellowship in the, in the blood of Christ. And I disregard you. I treat you as insignificant. I treat you as somebody that I could be just as well off. If you just left, I'd be just as fine. And when you do that, you are causing problems to the body of Christ. And he says, and God will deal with you. Because he wants us to work together. Um, I mean, we're not going to go there because it's not, well, let's go there while we're here. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because there is another aspect of us being a temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and the end of the chapter. Now, we looked at this, I think on Wednesday night, um, when we were talking about the ministries of the Spirit and it says in verse 18, flee immorality. Every sin that a man commits is outside of the body, but of sexual immorality, a man sins against his own body. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body, now it's talking about your body, your individual body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and that you are not your own. So not only do we all comprise a temple of God, in a temple of the Spirit, be each one of us this way comprise a temple of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Your physical body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, don't take that body and then join it in activities that are inappropriate. Well, by the way, as an aside, or as an illustration of a problem on that, the way I was raised in that first passage over in chapter three, when it says, if you corrupt the temple of God, God will corrupt you. This is why when I was raised, we went to that passage all the time and we were always told, this is why you don't smoke because smoking corrupts the body and God will corrupt you if you smoke. And if you drink too much, God will corrupt you because you're corrupting the, your, your body. This is, these are the kind of things that we were taught and we weren't taught out of that that I ever remember that that's talking about the body of Christ. It's talking about the temple. It's not talking about my physical body over there. This is talking about my physical body. 
But that passage over there is talking about the body of Christ. So as a result, we missed a very important truth when I was being raised uh, with that regard. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2 again for a minute. Another statement here on, on all of this that we're talking about. If we look at, uh, let's go back up to verse 19, Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are joint citizens of the saints and are of God's household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. We just read Christ is the foundation, so the apostles and prophets were involved in laying the foundation. That's what he's saying. And Paul stated that over in 1 Corinthians 3, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together. See, you're living stones into a dwelling of God by the Spirit. So he's talking about all of us being built together. All of us making up this temple. So let's go back over there to Titus chapter 2. And one of the first things he says is then the older women likewise are to be, notice, reverent in their behavior. Or their demeanor ought to reflect, ought to reflect that which is fitting of the temple. And like I said, we could take that back to what was, the, what was the conduct expected when you went to the local temples or when you went to Jerusalem, went to that temple? Could be, but I think probably more fitting that it's the fact that you women are to view yourselves as being part of the temple and there's a certain conduct that's fitting, a demeanor that's fitting when you're with all these other believers. You're part of a living stone or you are a living stone, and you're joined with other living stones, and you're forming this temple in which God dwells in all of us, all of us together as this temple, making up these walls. And there's a conduct that's fitting when you're together with that group of people. Right? Do we all get that? In other words, this is a body statement. There is a conduct that's fitting of being part of the body. But he doesn't call it body here. He calls it fitting of the temple. Any comments or questions to think about this? When you think of what was going on in the Gentile temple, it would have been a direct contrast. There would have been. Yeah, because some of the things that went on in there were, were pretty disgusting and pretty vile in the way that they conducted themselves. I don't know if the word is actually in the text, but wouldn't that be um, a conduct that would reflect um, unity and the things that you say and do are for the unity of that's exactly that's exactly what we're trying to get at. Yeah, you're you're supposed to be functioning together. That was the whole point in the First Corinthians three passage: is if you corrupt the temple, how do you do that? You're causing division rather than promoting unity. We keep going in Ephesians. We've been going over Ephesians now for oh, a couple of years at least now. Not, Tim doesn't move very fast through Ephesians, but as we're going through that, one of the things we keep talking about is the fact that we are we are to be part of the solution, allow God to use us to be part of the solution in that rather than part of the problem. You can't you can't control other people being part of the problem, but you can, can you can make the choice for you not to be part of the problem. And that's what a lot of us think about. 
lot of us are always thinking about, well, that person, if they'd get their act together, my life would be great. You know, when we talk through, we always say that when we're talking about the armor of God over in Ephesians 6. So we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So I'm not wrestling with Dwight. I need to be told that. Because what if for some reason Dwight and I are butting heads on something in the body of Christ? Whatever it might be. I can think, well, if he just get his act together, or he could think of Tim and just get his act together. And the problem is, I can't make him do that. He can't make me do that. But I can choose to relate to him properly, even if he chooses not to relate to me properly. And so he said, this was fitting. This is fitting for the women. Yeah. This is fitting conduct for the for the women. And I would even say, if we went back to the what we just worked, looked at last week of the men in verse 2, that the older men are supposed to be, that first word, sober, and then to be grave or dignified. In other words, they're not drawn into all this petty stuff. That's one of the problems that happens sometimes in local churches is you get little skirmishes and things that go on and, they, and a little thing turns into a big thing because people get drug into this. And he says, the older men, they ought to be able to be above this. Not be drawn into this stuff. <coughs> and so, it goes on with the women then. Did that answer that sufficiently? Okay. So back in verse 3 then. So the older women, similarly then, in a demeanor that is fitting of the temple, not slanderers. Now, I, this, this, we might just say that this is tied to not fitting of the temple, uh, conduct that's fitting of the temple, but not slanders. In fact, this word slander is our word that, that is translated devil in our English Bibles. It's the word diabolos. But the word means slander. In other words, when we're calling Satan the devil, it's actually kind of a, a designation that say he slanders. There seems to be evidence, if you go back to um, Ezekiel 28, that he merchandised, he sold a bill of goods to these fallen spirits, or to these other spirits, they weren't fallen yet, but he sold them a bill of goods. And Jim was kind of hitting a little bit of this today, that he may seem to suggest that maybe God does not have everybody's best interest at heart, that maybe God is a liar. He certainly seems to imply that when he talks to Eve, he makes Eve question what God said. And that's the nature of being a slanderer. He's slandering the character of God. Slander doesn't necessarily mean that you're gossiping. It just means that you're saying, you're saying something that doesn't need to be said or saying something that's not true. Dragging somebody else's name and reputation through the mud. Don't you always find it? I, you, rest of you are probably smarter than me. <laughs> but when I'm online and I watch videos on YouTube, a lot of times those advertisements come up at the beginning of them. Have you ever notice how many of those advertisements are like, this young engineer came up with this great solution to this problem, but the industry shut him down. What are, what are you doing? He's selling himself as though, I've got a secret, but nobody else wants it. But I'm going to give it to you for only, and I never know, I never follow through on the, their thing to find out how much they're, what they're going to sell it for. And they do, they do the same thing. Doctors that come on there and try to suggest, hey, I got this thing, but this doesn't work for the medical industry because then they can't make money. This, these are the, these are the words of snake oil salesmen. <laughs> They've done that, whether they're trying to sell you something for your car or for your body or for your house or whatever it is, or secrets to investing money. It's always, they've figured out a secret, but everybody else trying to shut them down. That's really, in a certain sense, they're slandering these other people 
to promote what they want. And that's what Satan did. He slandered the reputation of God to sell these spirit beings on his plan. Which was essentially, well, I want to be like God. You guys will report to me rather than us reporting to him. You guys are just changing people that you're going to report to. And he does the same thing with Eve. You're really going to die? You're not going to, you're not going to die. And I agree with, with what Jim said. He had witnessed death. He didn't have a physical body. He didn't know what it was like to all of a sudden, you know, I, this is purely imaginary because I don't know that this happened. But you ever wonder sometimes if Eve took a bite and was like, oh, what was that? Because <laughs> you all feel that, right? You know what I'm talking about? When you're aging, you're like, man, I'm, you know, you're 20 years old and you're hearing about people talking about problems and you're thinking they just didn't take care of themselves. And all of a sudden you reach an age someday, you're going, eh, what in the world is that problem? But anyway, he didn't witness that. He didn't have a physical body, so he didn't go through death. So he slanders. Well, what he's getting at here is, he says the older women, they ought to be those that are not, the New American Standard says malicious gossips. Literally, they don't slander. Even if something is true, they don't need to pass it on. But more than that, they need to be very careful about what they call into question with other people. It's just not appropriate for us to be the goes around and, Well, we, we went over this a, a, a few weeks ago when, when Josh was gone. I filled in for in the afternoon. We were talking about worrying and care. You remember doing this for those of you that were here and we we're talking? And, and Peter says, cast your cares on him. Paul says, talk to God. The world system and our conscience says, I have a problem with Stan. Run to Dwight and say, Dwight, stand it. That's what we do. And we don't need to do that. If you've got a problem with another believer, you should be talking to that believer, but you should first and foremost be talking to God. In fact, I'm, like I said, I, this is fresh in my mind because I'm teaching through Ephesians. But when you're filled by the Spirit, you know who the first people you talk to is? It's not other believers. The first person you talk to is yourself in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then you sing to the Lord. You're talking to Him. And then you're thanking God. Now I get to talk. No, and then it says, I submit. <laughs> Never once in the filling of the Spirit do I ever run off and talk to somebody else and then give them an earful of what I think about them. That's not what happens with the Spirit because that causes problems and disunity. Now, that doesn't mean you never talk to believers. Paul says in Galatians 6.1, if you're spiritual, you see somebody caught in a trespass, what do you do? You go to them and correct them. You try to, and how do you correct them? Knock it off. No, you're going to try to help them remember, who are you in Christ? Who does God say you are? Who does God say we are? This is what you're doing. And so rather than slandering, the proper thing to do would be to encourage people to think this other way. Then he goes on, not enslaved to much wine. The first thing he said with the men was sober. person enslaved to much wine is not a sober individual. And I, like we said, there are people that drink to excess and they're, I think that, you can correct me, but I think we call them functioning drunks. Is that right? People that actually, if you don't, if you didn't know better, you'd think that they were maybe kind of like everybody else, a little off maybe, but it's just because they've just learned to drink so much that they've learned to function and they don't appear like an idiot drunk, but they are. They are. 
their thinking is still messed up. It's still impaired. And so both for the men as well as the women, not enslaved to much wine. He didn't say that, again, he never says you can't have any, but he says not much. Much would be, I, I can't, I can't do this without it. I can't do this without it. I can't function like this without it. And we've got all these different things that people, that function. He says, you ought not to be that way. I don't think we need to say any more on that. I think that that's pretty true. I, I'm, I'm going to add this because he puts it right after slander. Because we talked about this in our, in our study in Ephesians. Have you ever thought it's interesting that right after, right before he tells us to be filled by the Spirit, he tells them, don't be drunk with wine. And it's fun to read commentaries as they're trying to figure out what's the relationship of those two. I just, this is purely a suggestion on my part, but I think one of the reasons he does that is because you know what happens in the body of Christ when you aren't getting along with other believers, when other believers are constantly rubbing you the wrong way? It's really easy for us to say, well, I can't put up with them, but you know what? I know something that'll kind of numb that up a little bit. And so we drink to kind of numb up the way we feel. So we cope. It's a coping mechanism that people use. Anyway, that's a suggestion, a part of what happens over there. I'm not saying that's the totality of what's going on in Ephesians 5.18. But then the last thing he says here in verse 3, he says, and uh, um, teaching... Uh, let's see, teaching what is good. Now, we have two primary words for good in the New Testament. We have agathos, which is good where I'm looking out for your well-being. I'm looking out to do something that is in your best interest. And then we have kalos, which is that which is beautiful. It's noticeably good. And to, to use an illustration of, not, of good from the physical world, just to show you that a thing can be good, Beautiful without it sparkling, shiny. When you take a drain in your shower and you put the bottom piece together and you thread it and it threads right on like it's supposed to, what do we sometimes say? Oh, that was beautiful. You're not fighting it. You're not trying to, you ever tried to get something started and it wants to, it constantly wants to cross thread and you're like, ah, ah. You know, that's not going to work out well if you, if you push through that mess. So we understand the idea that we attribute the idea of beauty to things that aren't necessarily like a beautiful woman that's fixed her hair and done makeup and put on certain clothes. We don't, we don't always use beauty that way. And so he says one of the things that she ought to be is she ought to be one that's a teacher of beauty. I, that's the way I'm going to translate it. We could say a teacher of good things, but it's, there's a reason he didn't use agathos here, but kalos. And then we come into this, and I knew a believer that had been in this church many years ago that actually, I remember, came to my wife and, and said to her, you know, I, I think one of the things that God wants me to do is help women know how to be beautiful. And so she was like, how to figure out your skin type, to figure out what clothes you should wear and your hair cut, and all of this. And, and uh, Peg was very nice, sat and listened to what she had to say. And then very kindly says, that's very nice, but, you know, really, and this woman didn't disagree, but, but you know, what really is important is the character. And I find it very interesting is you're going to go, we're going to go into the next verse when it says that they may encourage the younger women 
And he's gonna, he's not gonna talk about how the women fix themselves up, how they comb their hair, the clothes they put on, the makeup they put on. He's gonna talk about conduct, conduct related to husbands, conduct related to children, conduct related to being sensible and pure and the work that they do and kind and, in other words, they're teaching beauty in terms of character. Okay, so I have a question. Neither my Bible, New American Standard, or Gary's Schofield says beauty at all. It, that's because they translate it good. Teachers of what is good. But what I'm saying is, is that word kalos is talking about noticeably good. It's not agathos good, which is looking out just for well-being. It's kalos, which may be which may involve that which gives us a sense of well-being. But kalos is, well, if you take beginning Greek, you learn it good, beautiful. Those are the definitions you learn in baby Greek. Your first, your first quarter, you're going to learn that as a definition for kalos. And I'm going with, with beauty because I think what they're teaching in terms of beauty is not what we immediately think of. Just bear with me here. Flip over so in your. It could be good or beauty. It could be, but I think it's It is it, no. It is always good, but it's always good that is beautiful. Well, That's the nature of Kalos. Well-being. You may not see it because it's on the inside. A sense of well-being. Beauty is something that others can look at and say, "Wow, that's good conduct. That's something that that's, that's beautiful." Like what you what you just did. That was beautiful. Mm -hmm. What you just did. What you did. Not just what you look like. It's just what you just did for that other believer. What you did for me. That was a beautiful thing you just did. Yes. Everybody said that. That was a beautiful thing. That was a beautiful thing. And we're going to come back to what Peggy just shared. We're going to come back and look at that in a couple of texts here in just a minute. Let's go in our Bibles over to the book of Genesis. Turn to Genesis chapter 4. As I think about this an awful lot. When you think about women in the Bible, they do whole studies for women on studies on women in the Bible. In fact, I think there was a study that came up, book that came out, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, bad girls are bad girls in the Bible or something like that. And they're going through studies like this, or he's trying to come up with this. But you really ought to pay attention when women are mentioned, because if a woman is mentioned by name, there's going to be something significant about this in some way. In the end of, uh, at the end of Genesis chapter 4, it says in verse 16, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And he built a city, as a woman, and then their sons come, and then more sons, uh, descendants. And then we get down to verse 19, And Lamech took for himself two wives, so we actually have the, the entrance that we find here, outside of the presence of God, from the family of Cain, Polygamy begins, and then we have verse 20, and Ada bore Jabel, and it tells what he did. He, in, he gets involved in the commercial version of livestock, verse 21, and Jubal, he's the father who plays the harp and flute, and so we have the entrance of music into this system. And then there's Zillah, she bore Tubal Cain, he's an instructor, or literally a one that worked in bronze and iron. Seems to be that you have the development of what we would call industry. So what you're doing is you're seeing the development of things in the world system. But then notice what this next thing says. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Why does the world does it just come along and just say, Naamah, here's a sister. It's because 
your, your English Bibles just take the Hebrew name and pronounce it in English. If you translated it, if you would have been one of the Hebrew readers, you would have read that verse and you would have come along and you would have read, and the sister of Tubal Cain was beautiful. Whether that was actually her name or whether that was her quality, the name meant beautiful. And it referred to outward beauty. And the significance of that in this context is what does the world ultimately value? Remember, this, this, this message is being directed to you women today. <laughs> when you, when you word the scripture, how does the world ultimately value you as a woman? By your appearance. The world ultimately values you women by your beauty. Oh yes, we celebrate the, the, what Emily was just talking about that last night. The strong women movement. She was talking about how like Marvel Comics. Now we just got to introduce all these strong women superhero characters. I don't have a problem with that. But it's like we're going to celebrate this. But you, you ever notice you never have a strong superheroine any more than you do a strong superhero that is kind of, you know, average. <laughs> Their hair is kind of here and there. You ever notice how when, you know, that superhero flies in there and comes down after zipping through sky and crashing through spaceships and they land and their hair comes perfectly. Like just before they stepped into the scene, their hair stylists were over there, fix it all up, and boom, they pop in and you're like, wow. Why is all that? Because in the end, even though you like strong women, you want a woman that looks good at the end of the day. This is the way the world tells us what we're supposed to expect. Right? This is what the world ultimately tells us we should, we should expect. Now we come back over to the New Testament. What? Oh, um, let me flip my Bible back open because I do have these. Um, let's see, we're at the end of chapter 4. And we have, um, we have Zilla, which we have, we have two, um, uh, Ada. I don't have a note on Ada. I don't remember. I just remember Zilla means shadow. Shade, yeah. So apparently one is orderly. One is orderly, and the other one is kind of like a shadow. In other words, she kind of maybe lives in the shadow, secondary in that sense. I don't know. That's what that meant for sure. But now let's go back in the New Testament. Let's turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And what Paul is telling Titus does not differ at all from what Paul wrote Timothy. And he's writing 1 Timothy and Titus close to the same time which is why there's a lot of parallels in these two letters in some ways. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and look with me down in verse 9. And and, and this is interesting, because what is he doing in Titus 2? The men are to be this way, the women are this way. Well, he talked about how what the men are supposed to do in the first part, that they ought to pray, they ought to lift up holy hands rather than the hands that are in fists and fighting. And so in verse 9, he says, likewise, or in a similar way, He says, um, the women are to be uh, in clothing that is orderly and with modesty. Now, we think of modesty very different than this Greek word is meant by modesty. And I still remember listening to this as a pastor once, talking about, well, I remember pastoring a church once, and we had a woman that came in there on a Sunday morning, and she had, I think they call them these days, they call them Daisy Dukes. 
but cutoff shorts, super short jean cutoffs. You know what I'm talking about? She comes in with that, and she's got her shirt up there, and she's got it tied in a halter, and her, she's showing her stomach, and oh, you know, and people are just like, outrage, how could you show up to church dressed like that? And we look at that, that's modesty. That's immodest in what she did. This is where we're trained. But you know how the, what the Greeks used the word modesty for, this particular word? This word meant not a showcase. It means you don't come in and you don't, and he's going to bear this out. The verses following are going to tell you exactly what he means. You don't come in with the fact that you got your hair all fixed fancy and stuff in there and they would put stuff in their hair. I'm not talking about color or stuff like that. They would like embroider, weave gold and stuff into their hair and all kinds of fancy stuff. And they put rings and jewelry on and they would put on fancy expensive dresses. And it's, well, there's... That woman that showed up as Daisy Duke. Well, that, that was kind of making a show, too. That was kind of making a show, too. Yeah, a different kind of a show. <laughs> this is true, too. But what I'm trying to say is we, a lot of, there's a lot of women in a lot of churches that they're immodest. And yet they're not showing hardly any skin. They're immodest because they're, they, when they show up to church, they want people to be wowed by their clothing. And my wife, her family ran a clothing store for 38 years. So she never walked around in shabby stuff. And, and But you know what? She still wasn't always focused on the clothing that she had. And we went to a rather large church when we were in college. And I still remember she tells the story about a lady that came up in church one week. Comes up to her and walked and she says, you were wearing that outfit last week. Kind of almost like, I can't believe you'd wear the same outfit two weeks in a row. And Peg was like... Maybe I did. I, you know, it's not like she got up in the morning and go, I like that outfit from last night. She didn't do that at all. She just got dressed, came to church. And I couldn't tell you what she was wearing. I don't know if she remembers the outfit. She just remembers that happening. But see, there's sometimes you go to churches and people are paying more to how you're dressed than they are to your personality. I mean, I, I, if you would have told me 30 years ago that I'd be standing in a pair of jeans with a shirt that's, this is, by the way, this is a shirt, this little thing here, this is made to not be tucked in. That's actually, it's called a no-tuck shirt. It's actually a little short for tucking. It wants to pull out all the time. Anyway, if you, if you would have told me over this, I would have gone, no way. Because I was raised in a certain way that you didn't, if you were a pastor, you never got in the pulp without wearing a tie and a suit. You could take the jacket off on Sunday nights, but you better have it on on Sunday morning. <laughs> that was kind of, but so there are certain restrictions the way we thought about these things. But Paul, as he's telling uh, Timothy, he says the women ought to be adorned, adorn themselves in proper clothing, modestly. And that word modest, like I said, is not a display, not fancy clothing. Then, then he goes on uh, modesty, and then the next word that actually is, and uh, mine says discreetly, but that word actually is in sobriety or with a saved attitude. She ought to adorn herself in a saved attitude. This is not talking about her clothing at all. The thing she ought to adorn herself with is with a frame of mind that thinks about salvation. That's what she ought to adorn herself with most of all. If we would spend as much time, guys are guilty of this too, well at least some guys are. Maybe I am sometimes. <laughs> that you open up the closet in the morning, what am I going to wear today? And if we spend as much time thinking about who we are in Christ when we're up in the morning as, what should I wear today? Uh, I wore 
wore that t-shirt just the other day. I think I should wear it. You know, we'd spend as much time going, who am I in Christ? Well, he's talking to the women here, but I think this is appropriate for all of us. He says, so in sobriety, to adorn themselves, not in, notice, not in the plating of hair, in gold and pearls and expensive clothes. See, it's exactly what I was telling you. The modesty here that he's focusing on is it ought not to be the outward display. Is he saying that's wrong totally? You, you buy a you buy expensive dress, you better never wear it. And you know, get out of bed in the morning and go to church with your hair looking. If you if you guys looked at me, my wife loves quail, and I always tell her I'm either her cupid doll or her quail in the morning because I wake up and my hair is always in the middle like this. I try to comb it down. You know, but you all know what that's like. You know what your hair looks like when you go and look in the mirror. Is he saying you can't fix it? Comb it, make it look decent. Nobody's saying that ought not to be the focus because we ought to focus on a beauty that is, well, what does he say? The end part, verse 10, but rather that which is, that which, uh, is suitable, fitting then for women, those who are pro professing a, and we have one of those words that, that uh, Jim was going over, a reverence or a real respect for God through, now we have agathos works. Works that are looking out for the well-being of others. He says, that's the way you ought to adorn yourself. With a frame of mind that's appropriate. With a conduct, those that actually have a promise related to a proper reverence for God and good works. People ought to know us for how we treat others and what we're doing in, the, in looking out for other people. He says, that's, that's what the older women, or the women, actually, he says they should do. We have a similar statement over in 1 Peter chapter 3. If you want to look at that on your own, we're not going to look at it. It's going to repeat a lot of what Paul has said here, but it's basically saying it ought to be the inner person of the heart. In fact, I do want to go there because I do, I do want to look at that one statement. 1 Peter 3, I'm not going to go through this in the detail we did here in 1st Timothy 2 and it says in this context we're going to go to verse 3 just to keep this short do not let your adornment be external braiding of hair wearing gold jewelry putting on dresses or, or again the fancy clothes but let it be notice this the hidden man of the heart in which there is incorruptibility of a meek and a quiet spirit that word quiet doesn't mean Never say anything. It means you're not agitated. You're not always, you only know. But sometimes we never say that. But we're like that inside. Inside we're always like, so it ought not to be that way. It's the inner person of the heart that's meek. They're controlled and they're, they're quiet, which is before God. That's of great value. So we're back over here to Titus as we tie this off. I shouldn't say tie this off until I know for sure we're tying this off, right? <laughs> I don't know if we've got the boat up to the dock yet, but we're getting close. But it says, but that they might, this is verse 4, Titus 2, 4, but that they might uh, talk, talk about encourage the younger women. And we're not going to go through what they're doing with the younger women. That word that's translated encourage the younger women, women is a form of the word to have a safe frame of mind. Same word that we saw just a little bit ago over in, in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. But this has an ending on it, an idzo ending. Idzo in the Greek means to cause, to motivate, to promote. So they're promoting in the younger women an attitude 
that reflects salvation, that sets itself on salvation. And all of that ties into this idea that their behavior should be fit for the temple. They come to the temple, which is all of us together, and they say, what's fitting for this temple? That I walk up through the dignified? Hold my dress just, no. <laughs> it's that I am here to minister and be used in the lives of these other people. Not only that, but not a slanderer, because that's not, that would be like a person that they just about got those stones set on the side and that person's going around knocking stones out of the stone wall. If you ever seen some of those temples that are over there, some of those temples are built out of big rocks, but a lot of them are built out of smaller stones that are chiseled to fit together. And then they've got all kinds of smaller rocks that are set in there to bind everything. And what if you're just knocking all that? That would be disruptive to that. And not enslaved to much wine. That's not going to contribute to this unity. But teaching that which is good or beautiful. It's beautiful in terms of the, as Peggy was sharing, in terms of what they do, how they conduct themselves how they serve others, how they encourage others, how they share truth with others. And that's beautiful. And that leads right into the next thing. So it's not that they're teaching women how to fix their hair or how to dress. They're teaching them that there's a proper kind of character and a way to live. And it's not that women have that more than others. But I think the very reason he uses this language is because women are maybe, and I, I hesitate because, you know, we used to just say these things all the time. We always say, oh, women gossip way more than men. My dad taught school for years and my mom would joke sometimes that if my dad would sit with the teachers in the teacher's lounge, my dad came home with 10 times more gossip from the teacher's lounge than she would have meeting people in the community. So it's, women are not... I, I think we, we have to be careful. It's easy to say that they're the people that tend towards gossiping and things like that. But the main point that we're trying to say here. Hmm? Oh, oh, we didn't plug it in. It's underneath there. Yeah, we're almost done. <laughs> You miss, you miss the dedicated people that know what they're doing every week. Because I always, when I'm, when I'm hustling at the last minute to get everything set up, I forget certain things. Anyway, back to, back to the point. No, I, I, oh, oh, I, I don't know what to do. I'm sorry. Anyway, back to, back to this point. Um, it's, it's real easy for us to, to think that women focus primarily just on how they look. And yet the, the significance of this is we're keep continuing to say, just coming back as we're tying this off, that, the, that what these older women really are focusing on and teaching is that there's a manner of life that we can have. And it's not a feminine manner of life. I don't think that's even what he's getting at. I, we, I want to hesitate even to say that they teach how to be real feminine. I don't think even that that's necessarily right. They just teach that there's, you know, when you understand salvation and what it means to be in the body of Christ, there's things that are consistent with that. And they're going to be encouraging that. And they're going to have a role of influence with regard to the younger women that's necessary. I don't know that this goes on in churches enough anymore. And it's a twofold thing. Number one, we've got older women that think, oh, I'm just going to keep my nose out of their business. I'm not going to tell them what to do. And then the younger women are like, don't you tell me what to do. 
And I think if we're taught right in the church, the younger women should realize, you know what? Sometimes if the older women have something to share, you need to listen. That's called part of submitting in the body of Christ and submitting to them sharing something with you. But if you're going to share and you want them to submit, it better be something we're sharing. Not just, well, when I was this, I used to do it this way. Because there's a lot of that that's just a matter of opinion. It's not biblical necessarily, you know. Like, do you put the road, do you have to cut the ends off the roast before you put it in the pan? Dwight shared that story. Things like that, that just the way we did it doesn't necessarily mean that's the way it has to be done. But there are things that are consistent for all of us as believers. And uh, the older women have that privilege of doing that. So hopefully this is encouraging for all of us. I know that this is directed to the women, but all of us can think about, hey, when we're together, we're part of the body of Christ. Is our conduct fitting of that? Do we focus on what people see out here or do, do we want them to focus? Do we want them to see or do we want to make visible character and activity? And we don't have any younger women today. I know you all might, some of you might think you are, but in reality, we're all in the category where essentially we're beyond the fact that we're not raising kids anymore, Right. So we're not talking about those that are still younger and still figuring this out. I really think probably the younger women probably were those that were in the late teens into maybe about 30 years of age. They were these younger ones that are still figuring this all out. And you, if you're living the Christian life and learning the truth of God, you should have something to share and you shouldn't hesitate to be able to encourage them with that. Okay. Anyway, let's close with a word of prayer and uh, thank you for your attention here. Father, we are thankful that you address these things and uh, the world, boy, it, it tells us how we ought to look. It's going to tell us what ought to be the priorities for how women ought to look and the things that we ought to put value in them. And yet you tell us things that are really of value and the things that are valuable for women in a lot of ways, they're the same things that are valuable for any believer. Ultimately, is that we're reflecting your work in our life and the fact that we see ourselves as part of one body in Christ. Thankful for this time together, for your word, and uh, for the time of fellowship to follow. And thank you for it then. Amen.